0: So, we're going to pick up in verse 28 and then we'll read um, through the end of the chapter. And so we'll pray and uh, we'll talk a little bit about what happens with uh, this interaction with uh, the scribes, or these interactions, I should say. It seems like Mark uh, puts uh, several of these interactions together in this uh, section here that all are relevant. They all deal with. Um, the scribal authorities. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about, about what that is. And, uh, and then, of course, there's so many important lessons, really, that we learn from the things Jesus says here. So, um, let's uh, read, and then we will pray, and then jump in. Uh, Mark 12, uh, beginning in verse 28. All right. Alright, beginning of verse twenty eight. Then one of the scribes came and, having heard them reasoning together, disputing together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Jesus, of course, is who's being spoken of here, asked him which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely... He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who who devour widows' houses and, for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then... One poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself, and he said to them Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood all right you guys let's pray father we are so incredibly grateful that you are merciful with us that you are so patient with us lord would you help us to lean on you more to be more patient more gentle lord would you transform who we are would you change us lord That we would be less like um, the world around us that doesn't know you. And that we would reflect your character more and more and more. But Lord, apart from you, we could do nothing. So we ask that you would, as we see you in your word, that you would change us from glory to glory by your Holy Spirit, whom you've given to us, because you are, in fact, the God who is here. Lord, you're here. May that truth shatter all the other things that we're so worried about. You're present with us. Would you be honored with us as we worship you, as we hear your voice this morning? Would you speak to us through your word, we pray, in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 All right, you guys. A couple of things before we jump in here about the scribes. Previously in Mark chapter 12, what we found is that um, what happens here, at least what's recorded here in Mark chapter 12, is a couple of instances where Jesus is sort of challenged by several different groups. in Israel, right? One of them, uh, one of the groups, or two of them rather, were the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians. Though they tended to be both Pharisees and Herodians, more linked to the political uh, governings that were happening there uh, in Israel in the time. Remember, Israel had been conquered, uh, as well as much of the area had been conquered by the Roman Empire at this time. And so they were under Roman authority, uh, under the Roman Empire's authority. Uh, But the Pharisees and the Herodians had some links to that. They were involved very much in political dealings and things like that. And uh, the leadership of the nation itself, even under Roman authority, as uh, the Sanhedrin, which were 70 elders, um, many of them would have been Pharisees. Um, Now, uh, they had some questions for Jesus. They were trying to trick him and question him. He responded to them. The next part, we saw that the Sadducees did something similar. The Sadducees were trying to catch Jesus. The Sadducees were this group of people that were... Uh, primarily made up the priesthood. They were also seen as leaders in the community, in the Jewish community. They made up the priesthood. They were the ones who, uh, who served in the temple and other things uh, of that nature. Uh, but they also didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in um, the afterlife or in the resurrection from the dead. And so uh, they actually asked Jesus. They tried to trick him about a question related to the resurrection. They, they didn't understand how that would work. Uh, as it relates to this law of Moses called the law of levirate marriage. So they were confused about that, so they asked him trying to trick him. And he responded well, of course, uh, essentially rebuking them, teaching them that they didn't really understand. <laughs> they uh, didn't understand the power of God or the scriptures, the writings, right? So he responded to that, and then even used, because the Sadducees believed, they did believe and hold uh, as, as uh, important the law of Moses, the Torah. While they may have rejected the authority of many of the prophets, they did hold the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, the, um, the books of Moses, they held them in esteem and authority. And so Jesus replied to them from the Torah, showing them how even the Torah taught that there was a resurrection from the dead. That uh, at the time of Moses, at the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that means that, because that was hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already died, that means that they're still alive, right? God's like, I am now, I am right now, they are God, right? So was, um, Jesus responded to them that way. Now this next group um, are that or it's gonna, we're going to deal with is the scribes. The scribes were essentially the literate people. Uh, they, they were used in many places. In, remember, literacy is uh, what, what you and I know of as literacy, like in the United States, or, or in many places around the world, really in the past um, hundred or hundred and fifty years is really unheard of throughout history right where so many people are are uh, literate right uh, and even of course in some cultures in some places uh, today uh, literacy rates can be very low but this was very very relatively uncommon uh, throughout ancient cultures and so the scribes were people who had been trained to read and to write so that they were those who copied texts. they were the ones who wrote letters Oftentimes what you'll find throughout the New Testament when we talk about Paul's letters, as we get to Paul's letters, we're going to find that Paul actually used someone else typically to write his letters. He would tell them what he wanted them to say, uh, so they would be sort of transcribed uh, or dictated to them. And then somebody else would write them down. Sometimes at the end of Paul's letters, he would take the pen himself and he'd write something on the end of it himself because he's like, see, I've written with my own hand. You see that several times in the end of Paul's letters as sort of the proof that Paul's like, this is really for me, you know. So the scribes were used throughout many places, in many cultures, in lots of different ways, functioning as secretaries, functioning in all sorts of roles like that. Uh, they had something similar uh, that they did in Israel. Uh, but the role of a scribe wasn't just one like, this is exactly how it's defined and everybody does this one thing. Okay, It was a very, very broad category of people. As it relates to the scribes in Israel and those whom Jesus is addressing, if you look at Matthew t- uh, 23, you'll find that when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and their leadership, he includes both scribes and Pharisees together. And he says the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and the scribes and Pharisees teach you this. And the scribes and Pharisees, he also calls them hypocrites over and over and over and over and over again, which is that word for actor, right? Hypocrites is the word for an actor. So he calls them actors all the time, which is not like, hey, you guys are actors, it's really cool. It's a bad thing, right? A hy- hypocrite be bad it was a, a, a put-down, essentially, saying that you guys were pretending to be something that you were not. Okay? They were acting. Um, that was uh, the way that Jesus categorized the scribes that he's dealing with. In fact, some of what's going to be spoken uh, later on in this chapter as it relates to the scribes is something that we do find also in Matthew chapter 23, in that place as well. So uh, that is a, the whole chapter essentially deals with the rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees. If um, anybody ever comes to me and they're like, Jesus was just the sweetest little friend, everybody, he's just so nice to everybody. I'm like, listen, you just need to read Matthew 23 because he's pretty brutal in his dealings with and words to the scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones who <coughs> were to be leading the people to know God, but instead they were leading them away from him by much of what they were doing and much of what they were saying. So he addressed that. Now um, we'll pick up in verse 28. One of the scribes came, one particular scribe came. And having heard them reasoning together, the the previous section there with the Pharisees and Herodians and with the Sadducees, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, I want to make sure that you understand that this question is not which one is the very first commandment ever given, it is what is the primary commandment? What's the most important one, the foremost commandment? That's the question here which is the first commandment of all. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, what is the most important one. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard this uh, teaching before or several times, uh, This uh, these words of Jesus here, so maybe you're familiar with it. Um, many Jews, even today, um, particularly religious Jews, uh, may have, at certain times, may have on their uh, wrist, wrapped around the wrist, and then put on their <laughs> hand, and then also on their forehead, uh, these little leather boxes called phylacteries, okay? In the phylactery were four sections of scripture, uh, two from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and two from Exodus 13, two specific little portions of scripture, and they were on little pieces of paper or scrolls and sort of wrapped up and put inside the, uh, inside the, um, the phylacteries, Okay. Uh, the reason for this is because of what God says in those sections and what said particularly, and we'll read it in just a second here, what said in Deuteronomy chapter 6. But one of those uh, sections of Scripture is what Jesus quotes here, something that the Jews called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for here, right? which is how this section begins. So he answers in verse 29. Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, and this would have been so, such common knowledge This is the thing that the Jews taught. This is, in fact, the great commandment. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This statement of monotheism, that there is one God. And he is, in fact, the God of Israel. So central, so primary, and then coupled with that simple statement: "Here, listen. Hear this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is this commandment: and You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And some of the some manuscripts include the last part of verse thirty. This is the first commandment, or the the foremost commandment. There are some manuscripts that that uh, don't have that part in it. Some of the Greek." Uh, Regardless, this is in response to this question. What is the first commandment? What is the primary commandment? And it's that, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, we can find it there. You can look there if you'd like to look there really quickly. I want to read to you uh, some of what Deuteronomy 6 says uh, in that uh, section there. This is the central, the primary commandment. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's because of that last little section there. That's why they make phylacteries, right? They make the little leather boxes and they put them on their hand and they put them on their, their forehead at particular times because God says you will bind these things to your head and you will bind them to your hand. The idea, I hope that you get the idea of what God is saying to Israel. He's like, I want you to always be teaching, always be thinking about this, always make this what, how you act, what you reach out with with your hands. Like, Make this a primary thing that you live in. Is this reality that... That the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we will love him with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That we are to to worship him and to love him first. That is, in fact, the great commandment. It also says you'll bind them to the... uh, It also says that you'll bind them or put them on the doorposts of your house. And if you've been into a a Hebrew or Jewish household, one that's at least uh, relatively observant, you may see on a doorpost a little... A marble box frequently, a little tiny marble box, and it has the same type of thing, a scroll, piece of paper written inside. I have some friends who went to Israel, and they bought me a mezuzah and and, uh, brought it back to me. We have uh, one at our house, and uh, and what they do is they fasten it to the doorpost, and it has the scripture writings in it, the very same thing, because God says you'll put them on the doorposts of your house, right? So they literally do that, (laughs) literally put them on the the doorposts of the uh, the house, and sometimes as they walk by, they may put their hand on it as a reminder. They may uh, touch it as a reminder of of the Shema, the great commandment to love the Lord your God. Um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And this is the first commandment, and this is, of course, why uh, idolatry is such a horrendous reality, right? Because it is in idolatry that we are not worshiping the Lord. God first. There's something else taking its place. Not only does Jesus answer that question directly about what the first commandment is, but he also then uh, couples something together with it, which is frankly not really asked for. (laughs) But the way that Jesus phrases it seems to indicate that these two things are directly connected when he says in verse 31, so that's the first commandment. uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first commandment. The second, he says, is the second, like it, is this. The idea here is that the second one is, is like it. It's joined together with it. We love the Lord our God. And the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, Jesus. Said. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This might sound like, and some people have actually believed, that this was a new commandment that Jesus gave. It is not It's not really a new commandment. It is in Moses. It's in Leviticus chapter 19. God says, through Moses, he commands Israel to love their neighbor as themselves, certainly as it relates to uh, many things. But um, one of the things is how they treat foreigners. <laughs> those who are not from the nation itself, uh, aliens, as sometimes it's called. Um, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A quote from Leviticus chapter 19, as I said. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now, Paul picks up this idea in Romans chapter 13. I want to read to you what Paul says in Romans 13, because this is really why these two are the great commandments, right? Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why are these the two great commandments? Well, really, they are because every other commandment really just gives more information about how to do that. That's all they are, right? Think of the great ten or the big ten, right? The ten commandments. They really are simply wrapped around the idea of loving God first and loving your neighbor as yourself. That's all that they are. And then every other commandment flows from that. Paul picks up that idea in Romans 13, in Romans 13, verse 9, or verse 8, rather. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Every right commandment summed up in that one. Every commandment, every responsibility I have to the people around me summed up in that one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want to caution you about a couple of things because uh, sometimes I I get really frustrated uh, about things. And one of the things I get frustrated about is how we can easily take scripture that is the writing, a particular writing, a particular scripture that is intended to get our attitude off of ourselves and onto others and our service toward them and, and uh, the way of God's kingdom. And we can twist that and make it about ourselves. You know why? Because we just love ourselves so much. We just do. And this is one of those that... I, and I heard somebody just the other day, uh, this, this um, a pastor on, online, I, I just was like, why are you... And he quotes this. He quotes this, the great commandment, the second commandment that's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, because all the commandments hang on that. And then the next thing they say is, and I want you to be really careful about this. The next thing that's said frequently is, but how can you do that unless you first learn to love yourself? And I want you to understand that that is a twisting, a perversion of the intent of what's being said. Sometimes it is thought that the opposite of love is hate, but it's not. Hate is not the opposite of of love the love that we're defining isn't, isn't a love that, that we ourselves give definition to. In fact, the love that the New Testament describes to us, the love that we are to love each other with, that love our neighbors with, is one that the Bible defines for us. One that, in fact, the New Testament writers uh, used a particular Greek word that wasn't even a commonly used Greek word, agapao, or agape. It was used some. But what they did was they used this word and then they injected it with with the understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus. And they used this word to define the love of God. There are other, in fact, three other Greek words that we translate as love. Uh, Some languages are far more complex than English. (laughs) Um, One is phileo or uh, like a brotherly love, a reciprocal ki- kind of love. Uh, one is eros, uh, more of um, a um, desire uh, type of thing. All right. um, but this word that's used over and over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures about how God has loved us and how we then are to love others is one that because of its definition and certainly as we continue to read the scriptures, uh, we'll find um, the whole attitude of saying that we ought to learn to love ourselves first so that we can then love our neighbor as ourselves is such an odd, it's such a, a self-serving, weird teaching that really it really doesn't have anything to do with, with the scriptures. And and I hope to I want to explain to you why I think that's true. Um, First reason is is this one. In um, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul gives us, I think, a wonderful overview of what he is defining this idea, the the Christian idea of love, what it looks like. And it is, in fact, uh, directly the antithesis of self-serving going to say that directly. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, and I'd just like you to listen uh, and then consider to really think about it um, as you listen, because sometimes you read through some of these things really fast, or maybe you're familiar with it, and so you're like, yeah, 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 I know that. Um, Believe me, I understand. (laughs) I grew up in the church, I've heard these things many times, but but, um, sometimes there's weight to it when I I take the time to just sit and, and listen and meditate on it. I'd like you to listen and consider what this means about what Christian love is. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned but have not love Profits me nothing. Love suffers long. And is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity or in sin, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, never ends. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And now abide, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Because in Paul's definition, the the Apostle's definition of love, he defines love as being something that does not parade itself. It's quite contrary to much of modern sentiments related to love. Love does not parade itself. It suffers long. It's kind. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. This is the problem with saying That in order for me to first learn to love my neighbor, I need to to first learn to love myself. Because love does not seek its own. It's a very... sad psychological twist on the reality that as... um, Paul reminds us, as men are called to love their wives, as... um, The Messiah has loved the church and given himself for her, for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This is Ephesians chapter 5. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. You see, the fact of the matter is the opposite of the love that we are called to as those who follow Jesus isn't really hate. What is the opposite of it is actually self-centeredness. Selfishness. Not esteeming others better than ourselves, but instead pursuing our own ends pursuing our own desires, pursuing what it is that we want or what it is that we feel at the expense of others. That is the thing that is quite contrary to the love that we've been called to. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, I want you to understand that you already love yourself. You do. That's why you. That's why you take care of yourself. Well, well, I think bad about myself all the time. See? But you're thinking about yourself all the time <laughs> because you love yourself. <laughs> why do you think I'm terrible? You still are loving yourself. <laughs> and sometimes we get caught up, wrapped up in our own heads, that we fail to see. The great opportunities laid before us in the lives of our friends and our family and others that we could serve. As Jesus said to his disciples, As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. It is an odd twisting of the scriptures to take the commandment love your neighbor as yourself and turn it into a time for me to tell you to find out how to love yourself more. You already love yourself so much. That's the root of most of your problems, frankly, because you and I are so incredibly selfish. It comes very natural to us to think about ourselves. the admonition of the way of Jesus is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when I read something like how Paul defines love in Romans 13, or in 1 Corinthians 13, rather, I find myself in many ways just humbled to that reality that um, I still need to grow in what it means to love. Love suffers long and is kind. (laughs) I've already failed. (laughs) Every day. Another way that's translated is love is patient. Love is kind. Sometimes I am the most impatient with the people who are the closest to me. And I think that's probably because I'm like, they should know better, you know, because I'm just really dumb. (laughs) These commandments, are what all the law hangs on. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus would say in another place. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second like it is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point of the command is to get your mind off of yourself, to esteem others better than yourself. So the scribe said to him, verse 32, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. This particular scribe, whoever, whomever he was, uh, um, agreed with Jesus. There is one God, there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Essentially, he says, I agree with you. These are the two great commandments, and it's more than all of the offerings and sacrifices. This is why, uh, throughout the scriptures, we remind you that it's better to obey than to sacrifice. Sacrifices are typically given because we fail to obey. <laughs> but if we love God first, and we love our neighbors ourselves, we wouldn't require a sacrifice, then it's more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which is an interesting response to me. One that reminds me of this thing that we might call this, uh, we might call a journey of faith, right? He's like, you're, you're not far from God's kingdom. And he was able to say that because of this guy's response to Jesus. Jesus said, these are the two great commandments. This guy said, yes, absolutely. And it's more important than all of the sacrifices, than all of the offerings that could be given. And Jesus said, listen, man, you, you are not far from the kingdom. A reminder that in a lot of our work in, in our opportunities that we get in investing in other people's lives, sometimes people are like, well, I need them to pray the sinner's prayer. And it's like, listen, man, you just you just keep speaking the truth and let the Lord deal with them. Let the Lord deal with their heart because um, God is the one who brings us to this place God is the one who rescues us and we have this great opportunity to just keep speaking the truth and love, keep investing in the lives of the people around us and trust that God is able to bring them where he wants them to be and you may be a part of that process but maybe not necessarily the the whole thing right? or or what you might think of as the end part of it right? but you and I still get to play a part in it by God's grace you are not far from the kingdom of God, he said. But after that, no one dared question him. The last little section was several questions that were brought to Jesus. And now Mark just kind of summarizes that section by saying nobody else dared to ask him any questions. <laughs> everybody else was like, because his responses were so right on that everybody was trying to trick him or catch him in his words. And Jesus answered them so well and so wisely that at some point, everybody's like, oh, well, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess we're not going to say anything else. I guess we're not going to ask him any more questions. Verse 35, now Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, this is Jesus now speaking in the temple at another time, but Mark couples it with this section, because I want you to see this. This entire section deals with scribes. I want you to see that. The first one was a particular scribe that came and asked a question of Jesus. Now Jesus is going to talk about scribes in general, this group called scribes, and this is something very similar to what we find in Matthew 23. Um, uh, as we continue going down. But Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. Stop right there for a second. David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. There are several places throughout the scriptures where I want—I like to make an emphasis on this idea of inspiration. That as it relates to the way that Jesus viewed the Old Testament writings, and this isn't even Torah, this isn't even the the law that's being quoted here. This is uh, King David writing in Psalm 110. Jesus recognized that the authority by which they spoke was not simply their own authority as men, but rather it was, in fact, the very Spirit of God who was inspiring what they wrote, what they said. We live in a time where it is very common... Uh, to um, take the scriptures and to essentially to judge what you think is true and what you don't think is true, to question this idea of inspiration and what it means legitimately. But the testimony of the New Testament writers is again and again and again and again that they believed this to be the very word of God. Over and over and over again, it's sold to us. And this is an example of that, how Jesus believed that David was um, speaking, but not just by himself, but instead he was speaking by the Holy Spirit when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? It was commonly believed, and rightly so, that the Messiah was going to be, that the Christ was going to be the son of David. This was something the scribes taught, because God had promised David that he would make his, his house into a dynasty forever. And it was that promise that was seen as a promise that the Messiah would come through David's line, through David's children eventually. Okay? It was a very commonly believed uh, Hebrew prophecy, something that the scribes taught, and Jesus said that very directly. How is it that the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? And then he asked them how that could make sense based on something David said in Psalm 110. And this might be a bit confusing, but I want to make sure that you understand the language here, because it's the language that really helps us to understand what's being said. If you look at the verse, uh, in most of your Bibles it will be this way. This is a quote from the Old Testament, right, in Psalm 110. So if you look at the first phrase right there, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, here's the first phrase of Psalm uh, 110, uh, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord. I want you to look at those words. Do you notice a difference between the first word Lord and the second word Lord in your text? Some of you will have this. Some of your translations may not have it. This is something I brought to your attention before. I want to remind you of it. Anytime you see in the Old Testament writings, and where the, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the way that our translators decided to translate the name of God um, in common vernacular. Y-H-V-H, or Jehovah, or sometimes Yahweh, is how it's pronounced. It is a different word than the title for a master or a lord. It's the name of God. Okay? So what's being said here in Psalm 110 by David is Jehovah said to my lord sit at my right hand till i make your enemies your footstool because they believe that david was writing about the messiah if the messiah is the son of david then why would jehovah speak to the messiah and as david's writing this why would david call the messiah my lord or my master (laughs) if the messiah is his son that would be crazy for a king to say about his own children, that his own child is his Lord, right? His master. That would make no sense. And so in this very simple, straightforward way, again, making a point with literally just the very direct statement of the words, just like, remember when he was talking about the resurrection? It literally is the verb to be that he uses as his argument hinges on that word. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the way that God told Moses that they are still alive, essentially. God revealed that to Moses, that they are alive. And that's the way Jesus understood it. Because that was his argument for the fact that there was a resurrection from the dead. So, to hear a very direct statement. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This quote from Psalm 110, from David's writings by the Holy Spirit, and he asked them a question. They had been asking him questions. Now he's asking them a question. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And um, <laughs> the common people heard him gladly. Which is one of the things I love. So often it is the religious elite that simply hear the words of Jesus or the words of the writings, the scriptures, and question everything. And refuse to just believe what it says. And it is so often the common people who just read what the the text says and say, I'm just going to believe that. And Jesus encouraged us to remind us that true faith, truly coming to Him, is something that we do as children, just like little children. We come to Him and we believe Him. It doesn't mean that we ought to be childish, as it's been said. But we are to have what, what can be called a childlike faith. I, I want you guys to understand, like, my kids, and this is terrifying to me. As they're getting older, they're starting to question more, thankfully. But my kids, for many years, just believed everything that I said. That is real scary. right? And this is one of the reasons why you can mess with your kids with sarcasm and stuff. You can totally mess with them because they don't get it, right? because like if daddy said it it's just true so sarcasm doesn't really work and then Kelly and I laugh at the expense of our children haha you know <laughs> like <laughs> because they don't they don't understand cuz cuz daddy said it it's just what's right right it's true right um it's that kind of place that I want to find myself in my relationship to the lord where i hear what he says and i just believe it. I know that there are people a lot smarter than me who say that's really dumb, but I don't think that God set out to trick us when he inspired the scriptures to be written, to be recorded for us that we might know him. Sometimes people get into hidden Bible codes and into hidden meanings behind things, and I just... think that God is a good father and he loves us he wants us to know him to truly know him Jesus asked this question of them and and there was no response those who should have been who thought they were the religious elite those who thought they understood the law and understood God and thought they could answer all the questions and teach all the people Jesus asked them a stumper (laughs) common people heard him gladly. Look around you. Paul writes to the Corinthians. Not many mighty, not many noble. (laughs) But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the foolish things to confound the wise. If you guys haven't learned it yet, that's literally why I'm here. (laughs) Because God has chosen the foolish things. Then he said to them in his teaching, the last little section here, beware of the scribes. Remember I told you this whole section deals with the scribes. He asked the um, scribes a question uh, before. Now he's going to say something very directly about them. This is what I was mentioning. They're very similar to what is said in Matthew 23. Some similar ideas are in Luke chapter 20. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. This would likely be What you and I might think of as like a very, very long prayer shawl type of thing. Um, Obviously, what this does is it sets you aside from the common people, right? It sets you, the idea here is that you wear a particular outfit or dress that makes you separate from everyone else. And I can't help but think of uh, the way that, the way, uh, this is, somebody's going to hear this and like rail on me, I'm sure. But like, you guys know like the little clergy, like white collar things, you know what I'm talking about? Wear that stuff. They have like their top button button right here, <coughs> it like, chokes me, right? But then they have this little white thing that goes right here. Usually a black shirt, white little collar that goes under their thing. Um, it's a very common thing uh, among some um, groups, but um, it's interesting that type of attire. There are other groups that, like, they have, whole, they have whole robes that they wear and stuff like that. Maybe they just do it. Some, some groups wear them, like, in their services only. Others might wear them at other times as well. <clears throat> but I, I want you to at least be aware of what Jesus is addressing here as he's talking about the scribes. And, and in Matthew 23, includes scribes and Pharisees in this group who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, right, because, like everybody sees you when you're wearing your special robe, and so they know you, and they're like, hey, Bill, or whatever, you know. Hey, Bob, you know, and they love greetings in the marketplaces. They love that kind of attention. Verse 39, they love the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts who devour widows' houses. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) something that later on is addressed this idea of false teachers going around and essentially taking captive gullible women laden down with sins devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers just for how it looks for a pretense these will receive greater condemnation Much of what Jesus addresses here is the exact opposite of what he teaches as the way of his kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus says, Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like those who go when they give alms, who go and like blow a trumpet so that everybody knows. When you pray, he said, Go lock yourself in a closet and pray to your Father in secret. your father who sees in secret will reward openly and that's a vital spiritual truth that I need you to understand. Because once you really get that, it can change the way that you, you manage your marriage. It can change the way that you manage your relationship with your children or with your boss or with your coworkers or your employees. You have a father who sees in secret and he rewards openly what no one else can see. If you can believe that, then you will find such peace in your life, in your relationships, because you realize that you don't always have to say something, you don't always have to make the point. Sometimes certainly there is a time and a place. But we have a great opportunity to die to ourselves, to forgive the people around us, and to believe that there is a God who is just, who loves us, and who will make all things right in a way that we can. Jesus rebuke against the scribes is against their ostentatious, pretentious, want everybody to notice them. These were the, you know, they wanted to be like the TikTok dudes with lots of followers and likes and all that stuff. They literally wanted to be influencers, right? This is... This is influencers before social media. That's literally... They want everybody to greet them in the marketplaces. They want everybody to see them. They want to be the ones out front. They want the best places in the synagogue. They want the best seats at the festivals and feasts. They devour widows' houses, though. They take advantage of widows. This vulnerable group whom God loves, and and we are called numerous times throughout the scriptures to be those who protect... All these people devour widows' houses, and for a pretense they make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Whew. I think at the the revelation of our King, there's going to be a lot of surprises. There's going to be a lot of surprises as God sets. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and you might think this is unrelated, but I encourage you to link this with what was just said about the scribes devouring widows' houses. Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury. I just want you to notice that word really quickly as we finish up. He saw what? How they put into the treasury. This would be the place where you would give free will offerings to the Lord. You could give monetary free will offerings. This would be used for the work of the ministry of the temple. It would be used to help provide for the priests. It would be used to help provide for their families and other things. Jesus sat away from it, opposite it, and he saw how people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. And there was a time in my life when I tried my best to define exactly what a mite was and a quadrant and all that. And if you want to, you can look all that stuff up. You guys have the internet, too. It's a really tiny amount of money that's the point. It's just, it's just useless. And, and what's being contrasted here is this. Many who are rich put in much. Many who are rich put in a lot of money. But there was this one poor widow. <clears throat> she came and she threw in two mites, which make a quadrant this tiny, insignificant amount of money. But when Jesus saw it, he was so moved by what she did that he called his disciples, he made a point of it, he called his disciples of her. He called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury." can we get to a place where we begin to understand that the economy of God's kingdom does not look anything like the economies of the world around us? This poor widow who put in this tiny, insignificant amount of money has put in more than all of the others who gave. Even though the text goes so far as to make the point of saying... Many who were rich put in much. And here's why. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Maybe to summarize, Her giving was sacrificial. She had to give something up. In fact, it became, in many ways, in many ways, her giving is is the demonstration of her faith, saying, God, I I have to trust you to provide because I don't have enough. I'm just going to give you all that I have. Jesus had told a rich young ruler previously, remember the story, who said, I've kept the law. I've done it all. (laughs) Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and give the money to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy went away sorrowful. Well, this lady who was poor, this poor widow, put in all that she had, his last two little tiny coins. And Jesus said, she's put in more than all of the rich people who gave. Because what matters to Jesus is not... Your money. matters the same as your heart. In many ways, our money is very directly linked to our hearts. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. It's very true. In the, um, early on in the chapter, we address the story of, um, them bringing the coin to jesus remember of, of saying should we pay taxes to caesar or not and jesus response to that saying you know bring me a coin and he looked at the coin he said whose picture is that and whose inscription is it and it was caesar's right caesar's pictures on the coin it was caesar's inscription on it so jesus said you give to caesar what belongs to him. you give to caesar what is caesar's god doesn't he doesn't care about money He's not, he's not motivated and moved like our world is. He, in fact, owns everything. <laughs> Why would he care about our stupid coins, right? He, he owns everything. It's all his. Everything, everything belongs to him. <laughs> he doesn't care about that stuff. <clears throat> but, but what he does care about is your heart. And this is, this is what giving is about. This is what sharing is about, right? give to Caesar what is Caesar's give to God what is God's right and whose image were you made you were made in God's image so give yourself to him that's that's the lesson Jesus was teaching us before and and now as he looks at this woman giving this he he looked at how they gave and, and that in itself is such a primary central focus for our sharing not only as it relates to the community, right? Like we have stuff here. We have bills as if we're going to do ministry together, right? We have bills that we have to pay, right? So, so that, that relies on us being able to share with each other and also being able to help out whenever somebody loses their job, whenever somebody goes through difficult times, whenever something happens, you want to be able to help with that kind of stuff. And that requires us to be able to share if we want to see that happen. But what matters is how. Jesus was watching how they gave. And if you, if you feel like there's any obligation, any, any requirement where, well, I got to give 10% of this or whatever, like that old law, the law of Moses, it said to give a tithe, right? But there were actually three separate tithes that ended up coming out to about 23 and a third of your income. Uh, if you actually paid them all, uh, one tithe would be a tenth. Um, but uh, Israel was commanded to give more than one tithe. So, um there's no place in the New Testament where any such requirement is ever laid upon the church of Jesus. Instead, Paul writes and he says, God loves a cheerful giver. That's really hard for me. You know why? It's hard for me because I love myself. (laughs) Oh, you shall love your neighbor. help me to do that I just want to read the last two lines again and then we will close with prayer because I don't think there's anything I mean what am I going to say what what do I have to say like sometimes when we teach the bible or we read it sometimes I feel weird because I feel like what else is there to say like if I just read what Jesus says and and if you're understanding what he says I really don't feel like there's anything else to say Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. This certainly is in direct contrast, her attitude is in direct contrast to the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats and all that stuff. So. Um, Father, what can I say except that I need your help. We need your help, Lord. Because we are so incredibly self-centered. We need you what it means to put your kingdom first. What does that look like in our our marriages, Father? Can we be those who pray in secret knowing that you're the God who sees in secret and rewards openly? So often it seems like everything has to be a show. you, I pray. Help me to trust you, Lord. Would you be honored with us, please? Would you bless your people? Would you strengthen and encourage us, Lord? Would you make our, our, our marriages healthy and wise? Remind us that greatness in your kingdom isn't obtained by serving others. But instead, greatness really is just serving. It is what it means to be So help us in our marriages to think, how can I serve my spouse? What can I do to be a blessing to him or her? How can I serve and help my children, Lord? How can I serve and bless and help your church? And we serve and help and bless our community, Lord, our city. And then wherever else our our influence might be able to be felt. Lord, we pray you'd be honored with us. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Would you forgive us? (laughs) And would you change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Guys. I want the Lord to bless you and to keep you. And I want the Lord to make his face shine on you and to be gracious with you. And I want the Lord to lift up his smile on you, his countenance on you, and give you peace, you guys. Uh, uh, Hopefully we will get something scheduled for our men's fellowship.